this is dumb. It doesn't make sense. It's dangerous. Why would you? I mean, just the whole thing. I mean, in the United States, I was presenting these things for two or three years. Um, and, you know, I was just, you know, taking a lot of shit for it, basically, from everyone, from all angles. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the last episode of season one of the Rhinoplasty podcast. What an adventure it has been. We've had six months of interviewing some of the most dynamic people around the world. And in this month, in the month of August, it's everything's about preservation rhinoplasty. And we really chuffed that it's brought to us by Comeg. They're this very cool French company who make the piezotome. And if you listen right to the end of the podcast, I'm going to give you the contact details for the person you need to email to get a whopping discount on this. So that's our little background for today. And today is literally the cherry on the cake of a podcast that's gone around the world more than 30,000 times to more than 70 countries. I've been so honored to have the most incredible people to talk to about rhinoplasty, about their life, about what makes them tick. And uh, the cherry on the cake is all the way from California. Aaron Crossens, welcome to the show. Thank you. I've never been called a cherry before, but I'll take it. <laughs> Dude, you're the cherry man. That's yeah, your nickname, you baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, Aaron, tell us, where did, before we get into, into rhinoplasty, sure. what made you decide to go into this speciality that we, we're so passionate about? Oh, so when I went to, um, when I was in medical school, I actually wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and, uh, you know, you kind of end up doing what the people that you like do. And it turned out that the residents that were orthopedic surgeons, the hospital I worked at, they were just, uh, I don't know, they were kind of nerdy, just, you know, I just didn't get along with them very well. They just weren't really my kind of guys. And so There was a general surgeon I worked with. He said, you should go work with the plastic surgeons. They're super cool. So, you know, I did like a two or three week rotation over Christmas break and just fell in love with the people that were in that program. And, um, you know, they were the most amazing surgeons I saw. I mean, they were just so talented in the things that they were doing. I said, you know, I want to be like that. So that's how it happened. And then when I was in my residency, we spent six months uh, at this one surgery center and Roland Daniel worked there. And so going in, I was really interested in rhinoplasty. And, um, you know, I had this opportunity to work with who at the time was, you know, probably one of the three best guys in the world. And so I spent, you know, six months with him, read all of his books, you know, and then we eventually uh, became partners. And I mean, it just I was just very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time and got to learn from this world master. And he's an amazing guy. I don't know if you've ever met him, but he's an amazing, amazing guy. And he, uh, you know, he started, he, I have my whole career, I, I, to, I have him to thank, basically. Oh, well, it's awesome. And, you know, the nice thing about it is that, sure, you're in the right place at the right time, but you're like standing on his shoulders to take this whole thing so much further. And, yeah, I mean, what you are busy doing and teaching is you've got, the, on the one side, you've got this thing where you can teach internationally, but you've also got the pressure of having to kind of be the, the, the face and the forefront of preservation rhinoplasty in the United States. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about how this resurgence or revolution of preservation rhinoplasty has um, influenced your life over the last few years. 
So the first time I saw actual dorsal preservation talk, I remember I was in uh, Paris. We have this small rhinoplasty. It's it's not a society. It's just a group of guys that like doing nose surgery and drinking wine. It's called the International Rhinoplasty Research Society. There's like 10 people in it. And so we had organized this meeting in Paris and Gerardo from Brazil gave this talk. Now at the time, I didn't know what he was doing, but he was basically doing a, a caudal procedure. And so, you know, he's showing these videos and, you know, me, I, me and Rollin were sitting next to each other. And I said, that, that is the craziest, dumbest thing I've ever seen. And he said, yeah, that's insane. We didn't know, we didn't know what we were looking at. And so I, I just didn't even know what it was. And then maybe in about 2015, Rollin went to visit Yves Saban. They've been friends for a long time in Nice. And he came back and he said, I just saw the most mind bending thing I've ever seen. And he started to describe what Eve was doing. And he said, this is the future. And, and, you know, this was in his last maybe three months of practice. You know, he was still going around the world, you know, learning this stuff. And then in, uh, I think it was April of 2016, I arranged a trip to Napa Valley. And it was me, Rollin, Yves Saban, uh, Charles East, Olivier Gervaux, uh, Milos Kovakovic, and, and uh, uh, Guxel from Turkey. And so there was like seven of us. And so because I had arranged the trip and I was the new inductee into the society, I had actually arranged every morning we would give rhinoplasty presentations. And so it was like two hours of rhinoplasty in the morning and then we'd go drink wine all day. And so... Eve, I tasked Eve with talking about this thing. And so we sat there and for like two hours, he gave this presentation and we asked a bunch of questions. And I think he'd been presenting this stuff for, for a decade, but nobody just understood what he was doing. And so, you know, we talked about it and we thought about it. And then I drove Eve to the airport and, you know, Rollin was telling me, you know, you, you need to do this. You need to figure this out. And so, you know, I drive Eve to the airport. I'm asking him all these questions. And then I thought about it for like six or eight weeks. And then finally, I just found what I thought was the right patient. And I just went for it. And, uh, you know, and then I spent two years trying to figure out the surgery with all these guys. Because at the same time, you know, everybody kind of went home and we started talking about it and messaging about it and emailing about it and having these meetings about it. And around the same time, um, uh, Barish, you know, from Istanbul had gone to Budapest because that's where Peter Palhazi does all these, um, these, you know, different dissections. And so they, they were doing a different thing. And then Eve showed Barish, you know, how to do this on a cadaver and Barish just freaked out. And so he went back to Turkey and started doing it. And then, you know, Valerio Finocchi picked it up in Rome. And so at the same time, we were all, you know, starting to do this and asking Eve thousands of questions and talking to each other and just little by little figuring out how to do the surgery. And then it just, you know, we started, you know, having meetings and, you know, writing the first articles on preservation rhinoplasty. And then, of course, the three volumes of the book. And so it followed the same path that piezo surgery did 
you know, when Olivier and I, you know, and Rollin wrote the first paper on that, you know, Olivier had been doing it three months. I came back to the United States, started doing it. And, you know, it, it's the same path where, at least in the United States, you know, you start presenting these things and these guys are starting to present these things in Europe. And it's just met with this um, animosity and massive hostility. You know, this is this is dumb. It doesn't make sense. It's dangerous. Why would you? I mean, just the whole thing. I mean, in the United States, I was presenting these things for two or three years Um and, you know, I was just, you know, taking a lot of shit for it, basically, from everyone, from all angles. And the same thing was happening in Europe. I mean, you go to these meetings and, I mean, I, I almost saw fights break out between, <laughs> between surgeons. And so, anyway, over the last five years, it's now evolved into this, you know, revolution in rhinoplasty that I think, you know, almost everybody has somewhat adopted at some level. Um, and so it's it's just been... It's been interesting because, again, I watched the same thing happen with piezosurgery. It's just this uh, hostility towards a new idea, especially when it's coming from young people. And then, you know, I, I used to say, listen, the, the results in time will tell. And so if the results are good over time, um, people, people adopt things. And so what I really learned from everything is you got to be really open to new ideas. And when people, um, <clears throat> present things at any level because um you know they can be really inspiring i don't know yeah, hopefully that, that answered the question no, that's <laughs> fascinating because we we i've actually interviewed almost all the people you mentioned and poor old eves i mean what a man 20 years of preaching until somebody finally got converted and now the whole world's been taken by storm right yeah, no, Eve, uh, Eve was out. You know, the thing is, is that these operations are, are being done in Mexico and Brazil for a really long time, but they're doing, you know, this caudal or spar technique. And that, um, that surgery, which I do a lot, is extremely complicated and very difficult to understand. And the learning curve is not fun. Um, and so, it makes sense to me why that initially will not catch on. But what Eve was doing was much simpler to understand, much simpler to execute. If you didn't like what was happening, you could convert to what you have always done. And so it was that high strip, you know, push down, let down technique that kind of got people to feel comfortable with the idea. And then you can expand into that. But yeah, Eve for, I mean, for 20 years was has been doing this and it's just you know he was just banging the drum by himself i guess but now i mean look what he's look what he's created it's amazing okay so aaron i've got a question for for the more junior colleagues who might be listening guys who really just want to start getting into it or maybe or even in their residency what would your advice be in terms of that would you consider saying to the guys first just get in there and learn how to open up the nose properly before you even start thinking about preservation techniques or what is your advice to the, the juniors? Um, okay. So component reduction, structural rhinoplasty has to be the basis in my mind of, uh, of what you do because <clears throat> you want to get to a point where you can get yourself into and out of, any issue and solve 
a variety of problems. And then once you feel comfortable with that, then you can move into preservation. And so in, you know, the the book, Preservation Rhinoplasty, or even when I give lectures, I talk about the learning curve of preservation rhinoplasty and the different types of dorsal preservation in particular, and how to go from one to two to three to four, because you don't want to do what I did. You know, when I started, no one else was doing this except for, you know, basically one person in Nice that I knew, and I'm not there. And so we're all trying to figure out this operation as we go. To this day, I've still never um, seen someone do an SPQR or caudal or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I do it every week, but I've never seen another surgeon do it. So what I'm saying is, is that now because there's there's papers and there's books and there's courses and there's cadavers, I mean, you can learn how to do this and and take all of that information and go to the surgery with it. You don't have to, you know reinvent the wheel. But I think structural rhinoplasty is, um, I mean, at least for me, I know there's guys that do a hundred percent preservation, but for me, I'm probably 50, 50. And so, you know, it's, if you're going to have a rhinoplasty practice, you're going to do secondaries, you're going to get crooked noses, you're going to get all kinds of things, it's particularly in Southern California, you know, only 25% of my patients are Caucasian or European in background. There's a lot of Latin people, Indian, Asian. And so, you know, structural rhinoplasty, you can do any nose with structural rhinoplasty, but preservation is best reserved for the best candidates. You want to do the easiest surgery to get the best result. And so you've got to know everything. That's cool. And in terms of the, the, the senior colleagues, I think the Telegram group that is on preservation is it's fantastic. I mean, there's so much teaching going on on that group. Um, what are some of your comments? Because I have a sense that sometimes there's this feeling people want to jump on the bandwagon and just slightly tweak a thing and put their name to it, etc. What do you think about that? So I'm very comfortable in admitting that I've never uh, invented anything. And most of us have not. Anything that you think that you've thought of that's unique, you know, you go back one generation and over one language and it was already described. (laughs) Um, I tend to, um, you know, I'm a guy who has no political affiliation. I mean, I belong to the Rhinoplasty Society. Um, I present there every year. I'm not on the board. I've never been offered a position. I, I don't have... I'm apolitical. You know, I don't care because I I love rhinoplasty. It's my passion. I do it for me. I like teaching it, but I don't need to put my name on anything. Um, even I remember when I was doing preservation, you know, and I, I started doing cartilage preservation on, on, on a lot of Latin patients. And I thought, wow, you know, it was something that my mind came up with, but you look back and, you know, Ishida has been doing it since 1999 and his sons described it. And Miguel over in Portugal is doing, it's the same thing. So, mm. you know, I, for me personally, I putting your names, it's an ego thing, right? It's like mm. um, when you go to a meeting, right? There's only three reasons to go to a meeting. If, if you're presenting one, you're there to learn something, right? Two, you're there to see your friends or three, it's your ego, right? So for me, when I go, you know, like I love Enrico's Bergamo meeting. 
every time I go there, I, I learn something. I learn something new. But a lot of the guys that are teaching at these meetings, you know, people are giving talks and they're not even watching. They're playing on their phone. They're working on their presentation. And so why are, why are they really going there? It's, it's some sort of ego. And then you see people presenting the same presentation. There are guys that I've been watching giving the same presentation with the same patients since I was a resident. So I've been watching for over a decade as these people show the same patients, the same techniques. It's like, I don't understand that. You know, I mean, if, if you're, if you're going to teach, then just, you know, talk about your experience and if there's any mm-hmm. evidence to it, but trying to put mm-hmm. your name on every little thing. I, I mean, I think that's just an ego thing. I mean, when I think about the things that are unique, like when you talk about Barish's polygon tip plasky, right? That's a unique concept. That's Barish Checker's unique dissection, understanding of Patangi ligament complex, using a lateral curl steel and a strut to do something that that is his idea. That is his mind. That is his operation. That is a truly unique thing. But you know, just look at the septal extension graft. I mean, there's 10 different variations with 42 different names, you know, and it's all been done before, you know, that's not unique. And so that's, that's my opinion on it. You know, it, that as you know, rhinoplasty is the most humbling operation, right? Some days you go to work and you go, oh man, I am so good at this. And then the next day you go to work and you go, you know, what happened, you know, I suck or whatever it is, what happened there? And so, you know, you gotta, you gotta hold that with you. Oh, no, those are great comments. eh? It reminds me of, of one of the comments I love Rod Rorick said, he said, Hey Cameron, everyone's world famous on their own website. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So, so it's so interesting that you say to me about 50% of the surgeries you do are actually preservation. So the next question is also in terms of how many rhinoplasties do you actually do? Because I remember Wolfgang got quite psyched up about this saying, but Cameron, you have these guys who say they do 500 rhinoplasties in a year. Do they not sleep at night? So um, I'll be interested. I mean, you, you are solely rhinoplasty practice. Basically. And, yeah. and how much are you operating a year? So I, if I'm in town, I typically do about eight to 10 surgeries a week. And so, um, you know, what does that equate to? Probably 350 rhinoplasties if I was um, here, you know, every week. But I'm not, you know, I like to go on vacation. I always take, you know, 10 days and go work at a winery in Napa. Um, I'm, you know, going to France for a couple weeks. So, you know, it's 300 plus. Um, And at least for me, in the next five years, I'm actually going to slow that down even more because, Mm -hmm. you know, I, at one point in my career, I wanted to do as much as I could all the time, but you know, my, you know, my days of doing three rhinoplasties a day, I mean, I don't, I don't really want to do that sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like last week I did, you know, two on Monday, three on Tuesday, one on Wednesday, one on Thursday, three on Friday. You know, that's a, that's a lot. That's just, yep. just so much, you know, and I, and then I come home on Friday, you know, and I'm like done and, yep. um, it's just too much. And so, 
I don't know how guys do 500 run. And then it also depends on how long your surgeries take. You know, you look mm-hmm. at a guy like Dean Toriumi, his operations take six, seven hours for what he's doing. And so, you know, he can probably do one a day, maybe two. And so they're going to do way less. You know, it depends. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wolfgang's, uh, you know, I've watched him operate. I mean, he he was very adept at taking apart and putting back together very difficult noses very fast, but, you know, so anyway, long story short, you know, I, I do 300 plus per year and that's, that's where I max out. I mean, I don't want to do more. So, so now tell me, um, you, you clearly love your wine. Have you ever had South yes. African wine? Yes. Not that many though. Not that yeah, well, many. I have. We, we've been toying with this idea with the rest of the IRS guys to have a, a rhinoplasty wine tour to South Africa. So I hope we're going to do that with you guys one day. And tell yeah, me the other, one of your other situation. passions. What's that? I say one of your other passions is surfing. Tell us a little bit more about that. So I grew up um, here in Southern California and also in Hawaii. And the town I grew up in is very well known for surfing. It's called San Clemente. And so, you know, where I grew up in most of the United States, you know, being on the football team, you know, it was like being on the soccer team if you were in England, but where I grew up being on the surf team was the, the big deal. And so um, I've been surfing since I was, I don't know, probably six or seven years old. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's the same thing as when you're doing surgery, you go out there and you don't think about anything else. You're just, you're, you're in the moment. And uh, I, I mean, I love that. I love being in the water first thing in the morning. You know, there's no wind, there's no one around, just the calm sea. It's, um, it's just something you become addicted to when you're young and then it just doesn't, it, it never goes away. And so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the waves are good today. So after we get done talking, my wife yeah, gonna, doing we'll, we'll get you out there. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, I do a lot of whitewater kayaking and also surf ski paddling. So I love being out in the ocean and being out in nature, et cetera. So yeah, Aaron, tell me about sharks in South Africa. You know, proper, we, we just down the road from Jay Bay where they have the Billabong Pro and, uh, right. and lots big of great whites. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> So tell me, what has been your worst experience ever in a rhinoplasty and why? Uh, worst experience ever. Um, gosh. I mean, I've had so many. I mean, if I'm being, <laughs> if I'm being very honest, you know, I've, yeah. I've had every problem you can possibly have because, you know, the, the most um, – I've said this before, the the greatest things I've ever done have been when I've been the most uncomfortable. You know, the best wave I ever caught, you know, the best woman I ever met, the best, you know, things that I've learned doing nasal surgery. It happens when you're, you know, extremely uncomfortable and push yourself uh, to a limit to do something that, that you can't do or that other people can't do, whatever it is. And so um, I've Learning the learning the SPQR, um, I had some really uh, really really difficult learning curve with that. Um, you know, maybe two or three four years ago, I was at a point in my career where I was just trying to do. You know, I I was trying to take on the most difficult, you know, revisions and secondary surgeries 
you know, that were out there. And I was just, I just wanted to know how to fix everything. And so there were just so many times when, you know, you'd get into those, you're about an hour and a half, two hours in, take everything apart and you just go, Oh my God, what have I done? How am I going to put this all back together? You know? So I can remember, um, I can remember two specific situations where things were, were, were very bad. Um, you know, one was, um, I remember that I was doing a revision on a girl who, um, she lives on the East coast and she's a a very beautiful girl and she's, um, you know, she's uh, an actress and, you know, she's, she's a known person. And so her, her nose wasn't going to be that difficult to fix. It was an easy secondary. And when I went to go take her rib, um, I couldn't quite, you know, basically her ribs were completely um, replaced with bone. They were just so calcified. And so I had to use the piezo to take out a rib and I had to cut every graft like it was bone and drill holes. And instead of the surgery taking me two, two and a half hours, it ended up taking me five or six hours. And I just, you know, she ended up healing well and it, it worked out, but that was a horrible feeling. Um, that was a really horrible feeling. <laughs> and um, you know, learning the, learning the SPQR technique, I had some real issues because, um, I was doing the high strip and the flattening techniques can actually be very detrimental in low strip. I just didn't understand. And so I, I had, you know, four or five experiences that were, um, bad. And then my last operation before COVID um, I opened a, a girl's nose who'd had multiple previous surgeries and I split the right upper lateral off the dorsum. And I was looking at a hole about this big where she was missing lining, like, you know, three centimeters by probably 17 or 18 millimeters. The lining is just not there. And so, you know, it's experience, experiences like that where, and I remember because I was doing that surgery. And then that night I was leaving to, to Dallas to go to Rod's meeting because we had combined our uh, preservation and the Dallas meeting. And so, you know, I was anyway, so it's just things like that. I mean, it's just, it feels really bad, but you know, you figure it out and mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's kind of the fun of it. What about you? What's your worst? You know, that what's that your worst uh, meeting was my most expensive rhinoplasty of my life. Because I took a week off the practice to go and hang out with Rod and Spencer and be at the course. And halfway through our first rhinoplasty with Spencer, the hospital manager came in and shut the theater and said, COVID's closed. So I had to get back on the plane, fly back to South Africa. And then I had to isolate for two weeks. So for three weeks, I had to pay to go to America. Three weeks of no income, one rhinoplasty. Oh, it was, right. it was terrible. Yeah. And and what about your best experience in rhinoplasty? I don't know if I could say it's. Um, I don't know if I could say that one thing was the best that I can remember, but I remember when Valerio had shown me a couple patients where, and Eve, they showed me patients where. You know, it was a nose that if I were to have seen it four or five years ago, the way I would have done it would be so difficult. And they showed me these surgeries where, 
they were essentially fixing the whole nose by doing everything inside, meaning no dissection of the tip, no dissection of the dorsum, just moving the foundation of the nose around. And I remember the first patient I did like that. And so it was a surgery that in the past might've taken me three hours. And instead it took 40 minutes and turned out so much better. And, um, you know, it's just, it's when those things click, you know, I remember the first time that I did a push down and it actually just that, you know, I remember the first time that I did a, a high strip push down. I remember I was working with my scrub, a scrub tech named Brianna and she actually Rollin trained her. They worked together for 10 years and I've worked with her my whole career. And I remember when I made that cut, that high cut under the dorsum, and I had this horrible feeling of like impending doom, and back pain. I like sat down, you know, and she said, you know, you can fix anything. You're going to be fine. <laughs> She's like talking to me. Right. And so I, um, you know, I kind of pulled it together and, you know, finished the surgery, but, um, I didn't know what I was doing. And then over time is learned more and more and more and just got more and more comfortable, you know? And so, I don't know. Every week I feel that way. You know, sometimes surgeries just go exactly as you plan and you really simplify them. And then, you know, I don't know what my number one best experience is, but you know, when you're trying to learn something, just, it just finally clicks. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. Yeah. That's cool. So I want to ask you another question. I supper with um, orthopedic surgeon colleague of mine last night. And he was saying to me that, he thinks it's super risky to do any surgery on somebody because the statistics are if you do surgery and they get COVID, they've got a 50% higher mortality than before. And I was thinking that's very interesting. You know, um, is that necessarily in rhinoplasty because uh, we, we're not doing these big abdominal surgeries or, or joint replacements, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think, first of all, we're lucky. I mean, at least for me with a, with a rhinoplasty practice, you know, the bulk of my patients are super young and super healthy. And, um, you know, I, at the very, as soon as when the pandemic started, um, and we have a, we immediately started doing PCR testing in my office. I just said, this is something that we need to be comfortable doing. Um, that we need to be in charge of. And so, you know, since COVID started, I, I mean, I've done over 500 rhinoplasties, I'm sure. And we've never had somebody, um, you know, have that issue. Um, but, you know, I think as long as you're testing people before and they're mm-hmm. reasonable and, you know, doing everything that they should be doing, it's not a problem. But mm-hmm. um, certainly if you're operating on, you know, people who are older or sick or in hospital. I mean, that's, it's, it's a very real, um, it's a very real problem. You know, as you know, since we operate in the nose, that's the belly of the beast. I mean, that's where COVID lives. So there was a time when I was doing betadine rinses on myself, my nose and my throat, you know, four or five times a day for months, you know, this was before we really knew what was going on. And so it's, it's been a, it's been a, it's, it's been interesting. But I think as long as you're, I think as long as you, you know, the risks and you're really on top of it, you can do, you can do safe surgery. So, you know, if I have any questions, I mean, there's, you know, I have a lot of people that come from out of town 
And there was a point where I was making them take a COVID test in the state they were in. Then they would take another COVID test in my office, and then they do another rapid test the the day before surgery. So there Mm -hmm. were people I was testing three times just to make sure that there weren't any issues. And so, you know, you just got to do what's safe, I guess. Yeah. I don't know what the right answer is. That's, I mean, there's, no, you know, no, there's one thing I know about COVID. It's that we don't know shit about COVID. <laughs> it's true. And it's not going away. It's yet to stay for a while. So, um, okay, my last question for you, because you've got to get out and sort those waves out, is for the listeners that are like really far removed from maybe North America and Europe to be able to get to Congresses, et cetera, What's your words of encouragement to the guys out there on the front line in, in countries we might hardly ever visit in terms of in them terms being of, a plasty surgeon? Um, so I think, so um, there's a way to go about learning rhinoplasty. There, there's a way to do it, right? And the way to do it, in my opinion, is to, number one, get Roland Daniels' book. That book is the best rhinoplasty book ever written. Is Atlas and then Mastering Rhinoplasty. It's uh, easy to understand, fun to read, and builds on itself. And if you do that operation, you may not hit home runs every time, but you're certainly going to stay out of trouble and 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 build on a solid surgery and then expand your techniques. Once you and by the way, there's and there's so many videos that go along with it. And so once you do that, then I think you need to become comfortable with that. And then you start expanding uh, your techniques by um, reading other people's stuff, watching their videos, uh, you know, for preservation, getting the preservation rhinoplasty book. Me and Dino are going to make a series of videos um, on those surgeries. but. If you want to be good at rhinoplasty, I mean, unfortunately, it's just something that you have to think about constantly, like more than anything, and really pay attention to your surgeries and watch how people heal, um, take copious notes, take really good pictures. I think the one thing that's astounding to me is that I think photographs are the most important learning tool, right? You need to take really good before and after photos. So you really understand uh, what's happening over time. And so when I go to meetings, the most interesting thing is looking at how bad people's uh, uh, photos are. And I don't know if they don't take them themselves or if they just didn't set up their studio correctly or what it is. But if you don't have time to take good photos and study them, I don't know how you have time to do good surgeries and become a better surgeon. And so... That's the number one thing I would say is you have to get, a, you have to take really good standardized photos yourself. That's my opinion, yourself. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, I remember Rollin and I, you know, we used to, you know, we'd go, th- we would go, I would go through like six months of surgeries and then I'd go back and look at the photos. I, you know, the patients I operated on, where did I have problems? Look at the photos, compare the operative. I mean, you've got to do that. That's just how, Mm. that's how you get better. And then, you know, visiting people around the world is, is important. I mean, you don't want to spend all your time doing that, but if you like someone's results, you want to go and figure out how they get Mm -hmm. 
that result. And um, a lot of people are very bad at explaining how they do things. You know, it, it makes sense in their mind, but they can't explain it. So you just have mm-hmm. to go and watch and understand. So, I mean, you, you just have to make a lifelong commitment to learning the surgery. You can't learn by osmosis. 100%. Now, all of those things, I mean, I remember Miguel saying to me, Cameron, if you didn't take photographs, you didn't do the surgery. And I've been so fortunate to visit people all over the world. I think I get so much more out of being in the OR or being in the consulting and seeing than seeing some guy give his best results on a, at a Congress, you know? When we were, um, we just had that preservation meeting over in Istanbul. And um, I went and watched uh, Guxel do a couple surgeries. And, um, you know, I learned more there than watching all of the presentations, you know, just the special ways he exposes some things and does some things and asks questions. and da, 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 da. So, you know, I remember when I remember when Barish came to Newport Beach like seven or eight years ago, you know, he barely spoke English and talking about things, trying to understand what he was talking about and then. You know, I've been to Istanbul so many times and watched him operate, and it took so long for so many of his concepts to click in my mind for me to understand them. They're just, they're complicated. And what's going on in someone's brain sometimes is it's very difficult. And so, like I said, if you want to, if you want to be really good at rhinoplasty, you just have to think about it constantly. And I, I always encourage people, you know, Give presentation if you want to really understand something. Give a presentation on it. Give a talk on it, and then write an article. I mean, if you write a peer-reviewed article that gets accepted, you really understand what you're talking mm-hmm. about. And Rollin always forced me to write all kinds of stuff, and it was, and I say forced because you know he just constantly was on me to do things, and it really, really helped because it solidified all the things that I was thinking about in my mind, you got to put it on paper and organize it. There's going to be a paper coming out in PRS that uh, myself, Dean Toriumi and Milos Gobakovic wrote. And it was interesting because you have uh, Dean trying to explain like his thought process for how he's doing these operations. And so, you know, his mind is obviously working at some level that, that, you know, 99% of people will, will never, ever, ever understand. <laughs> so I'm reading this stuff and, you know, I'm, I was, you know, helping to organize and, and, and write things in a way that this would actually make sense to people who are just reading it for the first time. So, you know, those exercises are, 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 are so, so helpful. That's why, I mean, Rollin, you know, me and Rollin uh, edit the rhinoplasty section of the Aesthetic Surgery Journal, and we very often get, you know, uh, involved in helping people write their articles. And it's one, to make them better articles for people to read. But man, I learned so much just from, you know, taking a, like, kind of a more raw manuscript and just asking a bunch of questions, trying to figure out, like, what are you actually trying to say? How do you present this information? And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's just something you get really into. I, I don't awesome, know how man. to explain it. Yeah. Aaron, listen, I, I, it's been great chatting to you, man. Um, I think on behalf of all the listeners around the world, thanks for taking your Sunday 
afternoon away from the waves and just sharing your heart and your passion. You know, it's a, a breath of fresh air hearing how, um, how humble you are about this stuff, you know, and it's stuff you just enjoy doing. And, you know, so yeah, on behalf of the listeners from around the world, thank you very much for, for your time. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I look forward to meeting you in person one day. No, no, we're going to get you to South Africa. I'm going to come to California. And okay, so Are the listeners who've, who've gotten, I beg you know, your pardon. Um, this next year, Rod and I have combined my preservation meeting with Dallas Rhino, but for in person. So I don't know if you were planning on coming um, next March, but that's going to be that's going to be a great meeting because you know in the United States, it, most of the people here, I mean, they don't even know who most of the amazing rhinoplasty surgeons are you know, in the Middle East and Turkey and Europe, and South Africa. Mm. Um, and so I've tried to uh, invite a bunch of people that none of the people in the United States don't even know their names. And, you know, these are the guys that are on the the forefront of, uh, yes. of, of these kinds of things. And so I think what are the, the dates for that meeting that will be amazing. When, what, are, what are the dates for those, that meeting? I think you it's know, March. I think it's March 12th to the 14th. Um, yeah, the 12th is a like Saturday, that. so it'll probably start on the Friday. Yeah, I can actually, let me look it up real quick. I'm sure. Well, that's two weeks before Enrico's Bergamo meeting. Right. That's exactly right. And so, um, uh, that, I mean, it'll be, a, it'll, be a great, it'll be a great meeting. You know, we have, because um, again, I tried to invite a bunch of people that, you know, at least the Americans or people from South America and Latin America, they just, so, uh, Barish is coming, um, from Turkey. Guxel's coming from Turkey. Valerio's coming. Uh, um, Eve's coming. Peter's coming. Um, so, I mean, it, we invited a bunch of people and they, and they all said yes. So, you know, there's going to be the lectures and then there's also going to be that huge cadaver course. And so, you know, I'll be having Eve showing his high strip pushdown and Valerio showing his SBQR and Peter doing the anatomy and probably have Dino Eliasnia doing the closed tip surgery. And so, I mean, I think it, you know, it's structure meets preservation and it, it should be, it, it should be really good. You know, Rod's done a really, you know, he does a great job of organizing that meeting. And so we really worked hard on the programming. And so, one of the other things is, you know, for, <laughs> so normally when you go to a meeting, right, that, that person says, you know, Aaron, what do you want to talk about? You send in your six topics. So I'm, I'm not that nice. So when, <laughs> when the guys come, I kind of say, this is what I want you to talk about. So I don't have that presentation. So I understand. So for example, you know, Barish one time showed me this, um, this like, it was I don't know if it was a presentation. It was just something that he made on tip projection, and it was like the most brilliant thing I'd ever seen. And so we had um, some sort of online meeting. I was like, "You have to present that. That's so amazing." And so anyway, you know, you force people out of their comfort zone a little bit, but they end up, you know, talking about these things that they really understand. They've just never made a presentation of. So it, it should it should be pretty cool. No, that'll be great. I really hope it's going to be two years since COVID hit, eh? So I hope that people are saving up now because, guys, those are two of the most awesome meetings. But in two months' time, we're having our own saucer meeting in South Africa, thanks to Rod telling me to start the society. And we've got yeah. Olivia and um, Miguel actually doing live surgery. So that's going to be pretty cool. Looking forward to Olivia that. Olivia and Miguel? 
Miguel, so are yeah. they coming out? They're going to do a safari and have some wine to drink as well. And then we're operating and we're talking at the, at the meeting. So all around, it should be a good time. Yeah, I mean, so guys, I just want to give a shout out to those people who might be interested in buying the piezo tome. You've got to get hold of a guy called Richard Maloney. So you can direct message me, or I'm going to just read out his email address. So it's rm for Richard Maloney, rm at malonymedtech.com. That is M-O-L-O-N-E-Y um, hyphen M-E-D-T-E-C-H dot com. So get hold of Richard. And that brings us to the end of six months of the Rhinoplasty podcast. I've got three thank yous. The first thank you, I want to give a shout out to the listeners around the world. Thank you, people, for tolerating all these mistakes and questions and all sorts of things. But it's been absolutely great to get the comments and the feedback. I've loved it. I've really enjoyed six months of uh, learning from the world's best. The second shout out is to all our sponsors. So every single month had a different sponsor. I'm just going to read through those guys from Medhold, Carl Stortz, Pentax Loops, Vectra, Suta. Elegan and Piezo. Guys, um, thank you so much. And then I actually just need to read out the names of the, that's my last thank you, is the people who took time off to teach. Um, guys, I so appreciate it. From Miguel, Sam, and Travis in February, Jeff, uh, Roxana, Vitilli, and Barman in March, uh, Robin, Filio, Gillian, and Mariana in April, Paul, Lucas, Lissandra, Andy, and Dave in, um, in May. Um, Prof. Dean, Roderick, and Peter in uh, June. Um, Basel, Wolfgang, Hesham, and Enrico in July. And now in August to Eves and Barish and Olivia and Aaron. Guys, thank you very much. It's, uh, you guys are inspiring people and thank you for your time. And we look forward to a season two when I've had a break. Uh, it's been taking its toll on my life and my practice as well. But I've enjoyed it very much. So we will be seeing you guys again sometime. Thank you for all the listeners around the world and come back for season two in a few months' time.